Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew 12, verse 1 to 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did? Then he and his companions were hungry. He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priest on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So it stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. If you got my email this week about today, you would have uh, seen a question. Have you ever taken something really simple and made it very complicated? And I said sports. Sports is a great example of this. Golf is a great example of this. The idea of around the, f around the mid 1400s, there's a, I don't know, it could have been just a, a regular guy on a stroll with a stick, and he happens to hit it into a hole, a rock into the hole, and thus a game was born, this game of golf. And you might think it couldn't get any simpler than that. Take a stick, hit a ball into a hole. But of course, we're good at making things complicated, aren't we? Golf has 34 categories of rules with multiple rules under each category. There's a rule of what you can do if a fly lands on your ball. A rule if your ball lands up against a cactus. Even a rule I found if a ball gets lodged in an orange. So it must have happened before and somebody made a rule about it. Um, I don't golf a ton, but in my golfing career with friends that I've gone out with, I found that there's really two different kinds of golfers, only two. The Pharisees <laughs> and everyone else. And I don't mean to offend anybody who loves golf here, but, but, but the ones that really follow the rules and the ones that are like mulligan, mulligan, you want a mulligan? Mulligan, right? And that's kind of what this passage is about today. The Pharisees were good at making something very simple, complicated. Our passage in Matthew 12 deals with how the Pharisees had turned the Sabbath, a day of rest for God's people, into something terribly complicated. 
And thankfully, Jesus comes along and helps us understand God's original intention and design and restores the beauty and simplicity of God's plan. The Pharisees, you see, were building up a little bit of a, a kingdom of their own. What do you think about when you think of the word kingdom or you think of a kingdom? What comes to mind? Maybe an image or an idea, a fairy tale or a castle in Scotland or something where golf was started. I recently had a chance to come back from Washington, D.C. And this is the, the backside of the White House here. You can't really get to the front, so the, we took a picture of the backside. And I had never been to Washington, D.C., and, and I thought going in that I would be like, oh, man, like museums, history, all this kind of stuff. But once you got there and you went start attending and um, some of these tours and w going into some of these buildings and seeing some of these monuments, you could really get a sense of this kingdom of the United States of America, the history and the tradition, the, the things that happened in all of these historical places. The Gospel of Matthew's overarching theme is really to introduce its reader to Jesus, the Messiah, and the kingdom that he is instituting. Jesus, the sovereign king, who has come to bring a new kingdom into being. And so through this series, there's really only two questions that we've been asking. Who is this King Jesus? And what is his kingdom like? Who is this King Jesus and what is his kingdom like? And so in our passage today, we'd like to understand who Jesus is as Lord of the Sabbath and what his kingdom is like for those who choose to live under his rule. I think pretty much everyone here this morning in this room falls into one of two categories. Those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and those who are curious or considering what it might mean to live as a citizen of this kingdom. And so my hope today is that either you'd grow more confident and sure of your citizenship, or maybe to take a step closer, or perhaps even decide to become a member of God's family and thus a citizen of his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you. I thank you for what you placed before us. The decision, a decision of embracing a kingdom. I mean, all of us do one way or the other, but you've put before us the possibility of a kingdom that brings rest and is full of mercy and grace and kindness and generosity. And so would you help us to give thanks if we are part of that kingdom right now, if that's something that we've embraced and put our hope and trust in Jesus and said, yes, I'm a citizen of heaven. Or perhaps it's something we've heard a lot about, maybe in the last few weeks, and said, I'm really curious, I'm interested. Not, maybe not quite there yet, but God, would you help me take another step in my understanding and my embracing of this? We pray these in Jesus pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 12, verse 1. Sometimes it's actually easier to begin at the end, isn't it? Or better to begin at the end. And this is one of those moments. The very last verse in this passage reads this. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. How they might kill Jesus. What might incite murder in the minds and the hearts of these Pharisees? I remember, remember who these Pharisees are. These Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day who taught and defended God's law and sought to apply it rather than break it to every area of a person's life. This would be like if Brent and I plotted to kill Kyle. I left Carla out because Carla would never think of such a thing. <laughs> but that, that would be what it would be like. These leaders of the church... Teachers of the law plotting to actually break, uh, plotting to kill somebody, actually breaking the law that they so vigorously defend. They believed, actually, that their obedience to the law helped them earn 
the favor and the righteousness of God. We might refer to the Pharisees as legalists, a person who follows the law to the letter, paying more attention to the rules and the details than to their intentions. A legalist believes that by doing the right thing, often good things, they can earn God's favor and be seen as righteous before God. Before we kind of disconnect and distance ourselves from being a legalist or legalism, we must remind ourselves that we're actually all born with a legalistic heart, legalistic tendencies. Legalism is, in fact, at the very foundation of almost of every religion in the world. The idea that by living a certain way, by doing certain things or not doing certain things, we can gain access. We can acquire honor or merit reward from God. And although the truth of Christianity, the good news is the exact opposite of this, this is what the Pharisees were teaching and living as their belief system and interaction with God. And so up to this point, the Pharisees and other Jewish leaders had tolerated Jesus. They had put up with Jesus questioning their righteousness, calling out their doubting hearts. The Pharisees disapproved of Jesus' practice of eating with tax collectors and sinners. And they even challenged Jesus' source of power and authority. But here in chapter 12, what Jesus does hits a nerve and strikes a chord right to the very heart of what it meant to be Jewish, what it meant for the Pharisees to follow God. You see, for Jewish people, the Sabbath was at the very heart of what it meant to be a Jew. They were so serious about keeping the Sabbath that, in fact, they were willing to die rather than to break Sabbath law. History tells us during an assault on Jerusalem by the Roman general Pompey in 63 BC, the Jewish people refused to take up arms and defend themselves on the Sabbath, letting themselves be killed rather than violate the law. And so why was the Sabbath so important to the Jewish people? What made them so adamant on keeping it, even to the point of death? There's three things that the Jewish people understood from Scripture that caused them to hold so firmly to Sabbath practice. The first was this, that the Sabbath was a sign of the finished creative workmanship of God. This was the day that God himself rested. Genesis 2 says, And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested. The Sabbath was a day to honor God and recognize his work of creation, his sovereign and all-powerful nature as creator God. The second meaning of Sabbath was a sign of God's covenant with his chosen people. The Jewish people treasured it. The fact that God had promised to be their God and that they would be his people. Exodus 3, 31 says, Above all you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people. The Sabbath was a tangible, physical, weekly reminder of the covenant promise that God had made with the nation of Israel. And the third meaning of Sabbath for the people of Israel was this, that the Sabbath was God's gift of rest and reminder of his faithfulness. It was practical. It was even included in the Ten Commandments. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. The Sabbath was a day given to the people to rest and remember his faithfulness, his provision, his sovereignty, and his lordship over their lives and the nation. 
the Sabbath was practical in the sense that it forced the Jewish people to remember every week on a specific day that their lives were in God's hands. And so by following the Sabbath, they were confessing that God was their deliverer and provider and all things come from him. And so you can see that the Sabbath was no joke to the Jewish people. And particularly to the Pharisees, who were the people that God had entrusted the responsibility of teaching the people and leading them to God. But despite God's emphasis and the importance of Sabbath to the Jewish people, the Old Testament actually doesn't give that many specific rules and regulations regarding how to keep the Sabbath, their behavior on that day. But, but because the Jewish people were so adamant and so concerned about keeping the Sabbath and worried about breaking it, over time, these teachers of the law established all kinds of additional regulations to ensure that people would not break God's commands. When it came to the Sabbath, Jewish teachers eventually determined 39 areas of work that were meant to create these broad fences around the Sabbath, what they could or could not do. A few of these categories include sowing, plowing, reaping, binding, threshing, baking, shearing, weaving, killing, cooking, building, making a fire, carrying, and etc. And then under each of these categories, there were literally hundreds of other rules to clarify and define what constituted work on the Sabbath. And so concerned were the priests about breaking the Sabbath law that the kind of detail and how specific the rules were were just mind-boggling. For example, you could only carry something up to the weight of a dried fig. This was one of the laws. Anything more was considered work. You weren't allowed to start a fire, but you could actually hire a foreigner, a Gentile, to start a fire for you. You weren't allowed to spit on the ground because spitting on the ground was considered watering. <laughs> you weren't allowed to move a chair or to, re or to put, uh, move a table, a table or a chair. Why? Because it was considered plowing. If you accidentally dropped something on the ground, you weren't allowed to pick it up. If a mosquito landed on you, you weren't allowed to shoo it away, and you certainly weren't allowed to kill it. If you happened to get clothes, uh, dirt on your clothes, you weren't allowed to brush it off. And on and on it went. These additional rules and regulations that restricted what you could or could not do on the Sabbath. Eventually, for the Jewish people, the Sabbath, their day of rest, became a day of great burden. In their desire to obey God's commands and out of their fear of breaking the Sabbath, they actually created more work for themselves in the form of avoiding work. This was what Jesus was, allude, was alluding to when he said just a moment earlier in Matthew 11. Come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so in this passage, we're told that Jesus was walking through the grain fields with his disciples. And because they were hungry, they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. And when they did that, the Pharisees were right there to accuse them of breaking the Sabbath. It's interesting here to note that the Pharisees were not objecting to the actual taking and eating of the food. God had made provision for this kind of behavior 
instructing farmers to leave margins in their fields untouched in order to provide for those who were poor and needy. So it wasn't that the disciples were taking grain that was the issue for the Pharisees. It was that they were doing it on the Sabbath, thereby breaking at least three or four of the Sabbath regulations. Reaping, threshing, sifting, grinding. It wasn't what they were doing. It was when. And I love what Jesus does here. We often think of Jesus as being kind of mild-mannered, composed, not really with a a person with a sense of humor or sarcasm. But look at how he chooses to answer the Pharisees. What does he say? He says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? The first thing he does is go to Scripture. It's clearly a rhetorical question with a dash of sarcasm. Do you know the scriptures? Have you not read what David did? Of course they had. They had it all memorized, in fact. And on top of that, Jesus uses David as the case study, the greatest king and hero of the Jewish people. It was the one where David and his men were fleeing from King Saul. And in their fleeing, they went into the tabernacle to seek shelter and help. David and his men were starving. And so he asked the priest, Ahimelech, for any food that he might have. And the only food that was available was the bread of the presence, the loaves that were placed on the table in their tabernacle each Sabbath. This bread was meant only to be eaten for the priests who were serving in the tabernacle. And so the priest, Ahimelech, had a choice to make. Should he show mercy and kindness to David and those in need, the anointed future king of Israel? Or should he hold a ceremonial law and refrain from breaking it? What would he do? Upon seeing David's need and recognizing his authority, the priest broke the letter of the law to uphold the spirit of the law. He gave David and his men the consecrated bread and they gladly ate it. And so Jesus is asking the Pharisees, what does scripture say about this? The scripture that you know and you believe. Does it condemn Ahimelech for offering the bread to David? No, there is no mention of punishment or guilt on David's part or Ahimelech. And so based on this example, Jesus is implying that he and the disciples also were not to be condemned for what they were doing on the Sabbath. And I think this makes sense for us, right? In legal terms, I believe this is called precedence, right? David and his men have set the precedent for Jesus and his disciples. However, this whole legal argument only works if one thing is true. If Jesus is as special as David... That's the only way that this would work. So the Pharisees must have been thinking in their hearts and their minds and offended to the core. Is this what Jesus is saying about himself? That he is implying he is as great as King David? Before they can ask him, Jesus goes on with another example. He says to them, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Jesus was pointing out that even as God had commanded his people to work for six days and then rest on the seventh, the priests of the temple were unable to obey this law. The priests had been given specific duties to perform, work that they had to do in order to lead the people in their worship of God. And so they, they were breaking dozens of the Sabbath laws, carrying water, gathering firewood, slaughtering the lamb, preparing the altar, burning the incense, and so on and so forth. Jesus is reminding the Pharisees that the priests were not considered Sabbath breakers when they did their God-ordained duties on that day. Okay, so again, precedence. Jesus is making another good point, an argument. And really, the Pharisees don't have any grounds of argument against Jesus. If they did, 
they would actually be condemning themselves. But once again, there's another layer to Jesus' argument that was striking a deep nerve with the Pharisees. In the first example, Jesus claims to be on par with King David. And then now, in the second argument, Jesus is implying that he is equal to the priests. If the priests had had the chance to interject at this point, I think their question might have been, whoa, back it up, wait a minute, what are you saying? Do you think you are equal not just to a king, but also to a priest? Blasphemy upon blasphemy. How would Jesus respond? We see this in verses 6 to 8. In the response, Jesus essentially says, Oh, no, no, no. I'm not equal to King David. I'm greater. And I'm not equal to the priest. I'm better. I'm greater than your whole system of rituals and traditions. He says this. I tell you, something greater than even the temple is now here. What could this possibly mean? The temple, the temple like the tabernacle before it, represented the very presence of God in the midst of his people. It was the center of Jewish life, the central place of worship and of sacrifice. But God had never intended that the temple or the tabernacle would be his permanent resting place. The priests and the Pharisees knew that there would come a day when God's presence would be embodied in a person. The one who would come to save them, the true king. And on and on it went in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, the ancient of days. This one, this Messiah who would be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. The priests and the Pharisees knew that. One day, the temple would not be the most important place for the people of Israel. And here in this moment, Jesus was asserting that the time had now come. Something greater than the temple is here. I'm standing right in front of you. I don't think we feel the weight or the magnitude of these words anywhere close to what the Pharisees must have felt. Jesus was openly declaring his deity, his claim as the Messiah. And then he goes on in verse 7. And if you had known what this means, if you actually had understood the scriptures that you read, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the sinless or the guiltless. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees something very offensive to them. He's saying, you don't even understand the law that you study. The very thing that you're most proud about, your supposed knowledge and insight, your perfect conformity to the law, is actually incomplete, insufficient. It's lacking. It's inadequate. You're misinformed. Jesus is saying, you don't even understand the law. You have completely missed the whole point. In your effort to know and obey the letter of the law, you've completely missed the spirit of the law. He quotes from Hosea 6 to get his point across. If you understood the law at all, you would know what is most important. You would know what God truly desires, mercy and not sacrifice. In Jesus' earlier teaching in Matthew during the Sermon on the Mount, he went to great lengths to point this out, to establish this. He says, it's not enough to refrain from murdering somebody which is what the law said. But you need to avoid even anger and hatred in your heart. It's not enough to avoid adultery because even looking at a woman in lust is sinful. The law says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Let's be clear here. Jesus is not annulling or abolishing the law or the Sabbath. 
he was trying to assign and establish a hierarchy of values. He was saying, yes, I require sacrifices. They are a part of our religious practices and have significant meaning and symbolism. But mercy and compassion and love for God and your neighbor is much more important than those things. Jesus was showing the Pharisees that they had taken the Sabbath, a gift that God had intended for his people for their refreshment and their joy and their rest, and had turned it into a curse and a burden. And finally, verse 8, he says, for the, Lord, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. As Jesus establishes his credentials, greater than David, greater than the priest, greater than even the temple, he is declaring his authority to interpret and to, de to determine what the Sabbath is all about. In fact, what he is saying here in chapter 12 explains what he said in chapter 11. Come to me, all who, are la all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What Jesus is saying is that he not only came to correct the way Sabbath was being practiced, but that he actually is the way. He came to be our Sabbath. Sabbath is not a set of rules and regulations. Sabbath is not rituals and obligations. Sabbath, in fact, is not even the absence of work, he's saying. It is the presence of God right in front of you. Sabbath is a person. How do we know this is what Jesus was trying to communicate? Because he backs it up in the next part of the passage. After having quoted from Hosea 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, Jesus essentially demonstrates to the Pharisees how to properly interpret and live out the Sabbath. We see here he enters the synagogue with the Pharisees close on his heels. And then they see a man with a withered hand. The Pharisees, having just been called out by Jesus and embarrassed in front of everyone, decide to give it one more go, and they try to trap him. Upon seeing this man, they proceed to ask Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And this was no innocent question. The passage tells us that they had insincere motives. They asked this question so that they might accuse him and trap him. And the answer was clear. Healing on the Sabbath was unacceptable. It was a clear violation of Sabbath regulations. Having just come out of a confrontation with the Pharisees regarding the Sabbath, Jesus once again sees right through their motives and gets to the very heart of the matter. He turns the focus actually back onto them, and he says this to them. Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Which one of you? How, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So, my answer to your question, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? The gist of what Jesus is saying is pretty clear and straightforward. Rather than going to Scripture in response to this question, he appeals to, to logic and reason. But what he is implying is really more profound than that. Notice how he directs his question towards the Pharisees themselves. He says to them, which of you who has a sheep? I mean, he could have generalized it, right? He could have said, if a person sees a sheep that falls into a pit, but instead he directs it at the Pharisees themselves. For the Pharisees, this scenario of a sheep in danger takes on a, a personal impact. If they do not rescue their sheep, they are in danger of losing wealth, losing a valuable commodity. But if a Pharisee and really anyone else who just so happens to see somebody else's sheep fall into a pit, they would certainly not risk breaking the law 
to save that sheep. Jesus phrases his response to the Pharisees in this way to reveal their lack of mercy and compassion in their hearts. They had no relationship or value uh, inherent with this uh, disabled man. There was no personal mercy, care, or compassion in their hearts for him. And so they just saw him as an object lesson, a case study to prove their point to Jesus. The Pharisees were not willing to risk violating the law to help this man. However, do you remember one of the ways that Jesus refers to himself in the Old Testament? He's called the Good Shepherd. The Pharisees would have known this. Read verses like Isaiah 40. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. Or Ezekiel 34. Behold, I will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I will rescue them from all places where they, where they have been scattered. I will feed them. I shall lie down in good grazing land. I myself will shepherd my sheep. With what seems like a simple hypothetical situation, Jesus is once again referring to himself as the Messiah, this time as the good shepherd. And he has mercy and compassion on the man with a withered hand. Why? Because the man is a sheep in need of a shepherd. Jesus is both declaring his identity and at the same time in one swoop, accusing the Pharisees. The Pharisees were supposed to care for God's people. It was their job actually to take care of this man who was disabled. They were God's representatives. They should have been the caregivers of God's people. They should have seen this man who was in need and taken steps to care for him, regardless of on what day of the week it was. However, Jesus made it clear once again that they had completely missed the point of the Sabbath and of God's law. They had taken something that was meant to be a blessing, meant to give life and restore individuals to wholeness and community, and turned it into a time of judgment and even shame. And then finally, to drive home both his interpretation of, his, of the Sabbath and his authority over it, Jesus then calls the man over to the center of the crowd and he says to him, stretch out your hand. He says, the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. Jesus here demonstrating that he has both the authority over the Sabbath as well as the power to be merciful and compassionate, to restore and to do good like none other before him. Jesus, the good shepherd who cares for his sheep, even on the Sabbath, because he calls them, and he calls them to come, and he calls us to come, all who are labor and heavy laden, so that he might give us rest. And what does this do for him as he both interprets the law and then acts it out? Instead of winning the Pharisees over, instead of humility and repentance on their, from them as a response, it tells us this, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him, to murder him. They were set in their ways, willing slaves to their own man-made rituals and traditions. They could not stand the fact that Jesus was not following their rules, thereby undermining their authority. And so they plotted to kill him. And so what does this mean for us today as we read through this passage? What is it that we are supposed to think about and reflect on as we come to the end of this. The first is this. Maybe, that, maybe you had some questions in mind when you first heard this passage being read this morning. Maybe you thought about how we would learn how to keep the Sabbath 
whether, or maybe whether or not we should keep the Sabbath. Maybe you had questions like, oh, is Jason going to tell me that maybe I can't watch sports on Sundays? I can't play golf, maybe? Maybe it's my kids. My kids, even I, I remember when I was a kid growing up, thinking about Sunday, I was thinking, maybe this means I don't have to do chores on Sunday. <laughs> and time load the dishes, right, or to vacuum. Maybe it's husbands thinking, I don't have to mow the lawn on Sundays. Maybe it's whether I should practice Sabbath on a Saturday, on a Sunday. As pastors, we get it on, on Fridays. This way of thinking about Sabbath, this legalistic idea of what you can or you cannot do, I think it follows us in our lives. Some are associated with Sabbath, but I think most of ours are probably in other areas of our lives. What we can or cannot do that makes us a good or a bad Christian, a follower of Jesus. There's only one end result of all of these rules and regulations, piling up one on the other. These rules that just cause us to bend and bend and bend and then one day break. This was what was happening to the Pharisees. They were feeling it, but they were also imposing it on others. And this is what Jesus meant in Matthew 11 when he talked about this yoke that was heavy. It was weighing people down, causing them more hardship than rest creating more work for them, even when they were supposed to rest from work. I mean, these are the questions that they asked, and these are the questions that we ask too. And the answer is not in a list. The answer is not in editing the law. The answer is actually found in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. What we think about him, who we understand him to be. Do we recognize Jesus as the Son of Man, greater than David, greater than the priests, greater than the temple, and all the, the rituals and the traditions and the rules back then and that we might make for ourselves today? Is Jesus and who he is and what he teaches our ultimate authority, who we hold in highest esteem, who we look to for guidance and direction in our life? Is our relationship with him, his voice spoken to us, able to cut through all of the lies and the deception, all the rules and the regulations that we see around us? Do we belong to him? Do we see him as our good shepherd, caring for us, being gentle with us, concerned about our well-being, wanting us to receive rest? And secondly, I think the other question that we might ask ourselves, that I ask myself, is concerning my, my insight or my understanding about my own motives, the reasons for doing what I do. The Pharisees genuinely believed that by doing what they thought were the right things, it put them above others and it gave them right standing before God. It made them better than the people that weren't doing those things. The question is, do we find ourselves thinking and feeling the same way? Do we feel better about ourselves when we do certain things, even if they're things like reading the Bible or going to church? Or do we feel worse when we don't? Do we look at others differently depending on what they do or what they don't do? At this point, I want to make something very clear. I'm not talking about being indifferent or non-judgmental or unprejudiced towards others. 
It's not, it's not a you do you and let me do me, who am I to judge kind of attitude. No. Elsewhere in scriptures, we're told that it is loving and necessary to hold one another accountable. And even to rebuke one another if required. And what I'm saying here is that of greatest important, importance is our posture and our attitude, our understanding of what our motives are when we do whatever we do. That, that sensitivity to when we stray from grace to works, from mercy to judgment, or from humility to pride, from repentance to stubbornness. We're all kind of along that spectrum at different times and points in our life. You know, even this week I find myself thinking judgmental thoughts, thinking, well, if only this person had done this. Or even for myself, judging myself and thinking, well, oh, I didn't... Lent. Lent is... <laughs> Lent is something that really reveals the brokenness in my own heart about judgment. Whether it's when I fail or when, or when I talk to other people about it and, and find out that they're not keeping it or so on and so forth. And these laws that we build up for ourselves, each of us has it, I think, if we looked hard enough. I find that my natural tendency is to be very much like the Pharisees. To think of the Sabbath and other areas of my life as the things that I do and the things that I don't do. But time and time again, we've heard it said that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works so that none of us can boast. As I thought about Sabbath this week, I thought to myself, what if I treated my marriage, what if I treated my marriage like how the Pharisees treat the Sabbath? That being married was primi primarily a thousand and one rules that I had to satisfy in order to fulfill the traditions of marriage and to avoid the wrath of Claire. <laughs> Would there be anything to look forward to in marriage? Would it be anything to enjoy or to savor? Would there be much chance and hope of deepening in love and affection for one another if it was all about rules and regulations? No, most certainly not. And yet this is exactly what the Pharisees believed. Exactly the way that they lived, thinking that they had to, to be like to earn God's acceptance. And unfortunately, so often it's the same for us in varying ways. God has given us the Sabbath as a blessing and not a curse. And more than just a day of the week, more than just 24 hours out of 168 to relax or to get away from work, Sabbath is not just the absence of work. It's not just lying on the couch. It's not just refraining from doing chores. It's not just setting aside a little bit of time. It is the actual presence of God in our life, in relationship with Jesus Christ. Do we now realize that Sabbath is actually with us, part of us, in the very person of Jesus Christ? Once there were rituals and traditions, rules and regulations, now we have a relationship, someone who walks with us, who accompanies us, who actually talks to us and gives us insight in how to live our lives from moment to moment. Our relationship with the Lord of the Sabbath himself. One who not only offers peace, but embodies it to us. One who not only tells us to stop working, but has actually done the greatest and most difficult work of all on our behalf. The work of going to the cross, of paying the price for our sins. He is one who not only can look at us and wish us well, but he's actually come to heal us and to restore us to health and wholeness in every area of our lives.
The Sabbath law was just a shadow of what true rest and Sabbath was meant to be. Meant to be. Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath came to fulfill the Sabbath, to make it possible to experience the fullness of its blessings and peace for the rest of our lives in our world. So may you experience the true Sabbath, not in what you do or do not do, but in the very person of Jesus Christ, the relationship that you have with him every day of your life.